Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 40 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is, does God still speak in dreams and visions? And yes, it's a continuation of our discussion yesterday, and we're even going to let it spill into tomorrow. So our focus today, spiritual gifts, cessationism versus continuationism, and just dreams and visions in general. And, and of course, this is from reading about Joseph. But also today, in Romans 12, we're at a passage that discusses spiritual gifts on a deep level. So today's passages include Job chapter 8, which introduces us to Bildad the Shuite, who, at least at first, is a better friend to Job at the beginning of his speech than Eliphaz. Mark 12 features Jesus's in-your-face to the pharaohs and scribes parable about a vineyard owner whose violent tenants just won't listen to him. And we'll close our reading today with Romans 12. I referenced it earlier, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. That's the passage that starts out with Paul challenging us not to conform to the world around us, but rather to be transformed into a new creature with renewed mind. In that passage, Paul mentions the spiritual gifts, and we learn that Christians actually, in some very profound way, belong to each other. And that's pretty challenging uh, in individualistic Western countries where we emphasize uh, us being individuals, you be you, etc., but it really fits in perfectly with Paul's use of the body of Christ metaphor to describe the church. We further learn in Romans 12 that God has given each and every Christian a different various gift of the Spirit, and whatever gift you have if you're a Christian You must use it. It's not really optional. The use and operation of those gifts is imperative for Christians in the church. Look at 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. It's a command. Christians who are gifted in exhortation must exhort. Those gifted in showing mercy must do it cheerfully. And those who are gifted in teaching must teach. These gifts are a privilege and a joy. And I'm telling you, there's nothing more fulfilling than walking in a life where you are using your gifts to build up the kingdom of God. But it's just not an option. You don't, nobody gets to sit back and watch. Far too often, churches have turned into a theater-like atmosphere, sort of, where people go to watch the performers and entertainers on stage. That is not the pattern of the Bible. In the past, it was sort of similar. Churchgoers went and they watched the priest, pastor, reverend, bishop, officiant, rector, whatever, preach and perform the sacraments, but they themselves barely joined in and only at a few times during each service. The church is not to be a place where we go and watch what's going on, but the church is to be a people that gathers together and ministers to each other in the power of the Spirit. I do want to give a shout out to... Margaret Agnew of Northern Ireland, who has left a very nice, very kind, very encouraging review on iTunes. And this is what she says. I am listening to these daily Bible readings in Northern Ireland, and Christ has given me a great number of blessings from hearing the Bible passages every day. I originally found Chase through a much much earlier podcast he did called The Gospel Friends. I would highly recommend this podcast to anyone who wants daily soundbite readings to study and think about. Peace to Christ, peace in Christ to you, Chase. 
Margaret Agnew. Thank you, dear Margaret. What a delight and encouragement it is to get a nice review like that, and especially one from Northern Ireland, a place I want to visit with my whole heart. Now, I do want to tell you, Margaret, if you don't already know Mark Adams, you should look up Mark's Mess podcast with Mark. He is a fellow Northern Ireland international liver, uh, and he, along with his daughters, does the Mark's Mess podcast. And if you kind of like the humor and the focus of the Gospel Friends, I'm sure you'd love that podcast. I do want to invite you, friends, to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. You can leave a comment there on a post or a question for us to cover in a future podcast, and I love it when you do that, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And you can do what Margaret did and leave a review for us on iTunes or share the show on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It helps get the word out and it's uh, I think it's a good thing. I think it's an encouraging thing. Our goal is to get as many people reading scripture along with us as possible. Today we continue our discussion of dreams and visions with Joseph, a mighty man of God who interpreted dreams and received messages from God in dreams. And as we read through Genesis 42, ponder with me whether or not God has ceased interacting with his people in this way. Genesis chapter 42 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before them with the faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized him, but he, them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, we were twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Then Joseph said to them, I have spoken. You are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to go get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as sure as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. And they said to each other, Obviously, we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why trouble has come on us. 
But Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you guys wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out, and they loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, My silver has returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. The man who is lord of the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country. But we told him we're honest and not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of the same father. One is no longer living." And the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man who is the lord of the country said to us, This is how I know if you are honest. Leave one brother with me. Take food to relieve the hunger of your households and go. Bring back your youngest brother to me and I will know that you are not spies but honest men. I will then give your brother back to you and you can trade in this country. As they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his bag of silver. When they and their father saw the bags of silver, they were afraid. Their father Jacob said to them, It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Then Reuben said to his father, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to shale and sorrow. Today, maybe we should have talked about the dangers of playing favorites with your kids, because I sort of think that's a message that Jacob uh needs to learn here. But uh, today's question is not, in fact, about that. It is, does God still speak in dreams and visions? And it's a subset of a much, much bigger question. And that question sort of goes like this. Does God still empower and interact with people the way he did during the New Testament? Or are we in a post-New Testament era? Does God still empower people with miraculous gifts like healing, tongues, prophecy, and words of knowledge, or have those kinds of gifts ceased? Does God still speak by prophecy, dreams, and visions, or does he now only and exclusively speak by the Bible? These are big questions, and as we unfold the Bible day by day through the whole year, we're going to return to them again and again. It's a very important question. Now, to give a very basic and high-level overview, there are two major ways to answer the questions we're asking today, and there are many nuances of a position between these two ways. The cessationist view, cessationist as in cease to stop something, the cessationist view believes that the answer to most or all of the above questions we asked would be in the negative. No, 
God does not speak through dreams, visions, or prophecy today, but only through his word. No, God does not give the gifts of tongues, healing, prophecy, miracles, etc. today, because those gifts were exclusively given to authenticate the Bible as the word of God, and we no longer need those gifts today. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the other side, are the Charismatics and the Pentecostals, which believe the answer to all of the questions that we asked are a resounding yes. God does still give those gifts, and in some cases, certain groups among that number believe that actually God goes beyond what is seen in the New Testament and in terms of empowering such gifts. Now, somewhere in between both of those two opposite poles are views like soft cessationism, which believes that most, but possibly not all, miraculous gifts have ceased under most circumstances. But that view allows that God is sovereign and might sometimes, in some places, still empower such gifts and still occasionally, in certain special situations, send messages via prophecy or dreams or visions or whatever. The continuationist viewpoint is probably more cautious than most charismatic and Pentecostal viewpoints, and it seeks to balance respect for the primary authority of the Word of God with an openness to miraculous gifts. Now, it's a big tent, but I myself am a continuationist. I'm not a cessationist, uh, and I'm a continuationist along with such scholars as, uh, I don't know, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, Matt Chandler, D.A. Carson, and of course, many others. There are many charismatic people that I have a great deal of respect for, and some of my ministry heroes, like Charles Spurgeon, are much, much closer to the cessationist camp. I am a continuationist, but not primarily because of spiritual experiences I've had, but primarily because I'm convinced that the Word of God points us in a direction that assumes and really even commands the practice of all of the spiritual gifts. I'm going to try to summarize the cessationist viewpoint here in a few short sentences, but do know that this is too short and shallow to be fair to that viewpoint exactly. But again, this is a short podcast, well, 30 minutes or so, and it can't go into the depths that a three or 400 page uh, book like Thomas Schreiner's book or Richard Gaffin's book can. That's not what we do in this podcast. We can't go that deep. There are several cessationist arguments out there. And again, I'm probably going to oversimplify a little bit here. I'm not trying to be uncharitable to people I have a you know, slight biblical disagreement with, but two major cessationist arguments are the ones we're going to cover today. The first one says that 1 Corinthians 13 notes that there will come a time when tongues and prophecy cease. And presumably, for most cessationists, 1 Corinthians 13 is also talking about things like healing and miracles and dreams and visions, which is our topic for today. And and they believe that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 13.10 says that uh, tongues and prophecy will cease, quote, when the perfect comes, they believe that Paul is referring to the completion of the New Testament canon. And so that the uh, gist of what he is saying is that prophecy tongues and things like that, 
dreams, visions, etc., will cease when the Bible is complete. And it wasn't complete in Paul's day. In fact, the New Testament canon wasn't really completed uh, until the third century. There's a little bit of debate about that, but uh, our first list uh, comes right around the time in the in the 200s where the New Testament is complete. Continuationists like myself, however, believe that Paul is not at all referring to the completion of the New Testament canon in 1 Corinthians 13, but rather to the return of Jesus and his beginning of eternity. So as we read, I'm going to read the passage, but as we read, pay special attention to verse 12. With the completion of the New Testament, are Christians now in a place where they fully know, quote, more so than Paul did? Does Paul see in a foggy mirror when he was writing 1 Corinthians 13, but Christians today, because we have a completed New Testament canon, do we now see clearly face to face? I don't believe so, and therefore I don't believe that 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about the completion of the Bible canon, because I don't think verse 12 seems to allow that interpretation. You read it for yourself and consider that. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 through 13, Paul says, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for languages or tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things." For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So again, the question is, is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 13, the tongues and prophecy will cease when the New Testament canon is completed? And I don't at all think that is what is being referred to here. I don't even think that's a hint of what is being referred to here. I think he's talking about eternity. I think he's talking about heaven. I think he's talking about the return of the Jesus, of Jesus. But you read the passage and you wrestle with that. You go to the word for yourself. Certainly don't take my opinion on something like this. You get in the word and consider. The second major cessationist argument is based on passages like Ephesians 2.20 and Hebrews 11.1 and 2, and states that gifts and offices like prophets and apostles and tongues and healing and that, that sort of thing were for the foundation of church and not for the continuance of the church. Uh, Ephesians 2.19 and 20, Paul says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God. God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And so cessationists take those two passages and they say, well, the church is built on the foundation of the 
apostles and prophets, and therefore we don't have apostles and prophets now because uh I suppose the reasoning is that uh that because they're part of the foundation, they're not part of the continuation. Now, Ephesians 2 doesn't say that. I don't even think it hints at it, but that's the cessationist argument that what you use for the foundation, you won't use for the continuance of the building. I don't think that's how building works. You might use cinder blocks for the foundation of a building, for instance, and you might also use cinder blocks for the walls of the building and for the continuance of the building. And of course, I'm just arguing building here, but in absence of Paul clearly saying, you know, what I'm telling you is uh, that apostles and prophets are only for the first part of the church, not for the continuance. I think we're stretching the use of Paul's metaphor in Ephesians 2 way further than what is intended to say, oh, Paul is teaching us here that there's no more uh, a prophecy, there's no more apostles because the, you know, he, because he's equating them with the foundation of the church. I think we're stretching it too far. And similarly with Hebrews one, the, the writer says in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Absolutely he has. But is the writer of Hebrews telling us that, that now the only way God speaks is through, uh, is through the Bible? I don't think so, because he says he has spoken to us by son. It doesn't mention Paul or Peter or James or John or Revelation or Acts or the other, you know, writers of New Testament scripture. I think that is stretching that passage way too far to use it in a cessationist sort of way. So do those passages clearly teach that tongues, prophecy, dreams, visions, miracles, healings, and more have ceased? I don't think so. Of course, I've already told you I'm not a continuation. I mean, I'm not a cessationist. If I were, I would believe that. But I don't think that's what they're teaching. I think that stretches their meaning way too far. And I honestly, this is, again, it's not an argument from experience. This is an argument from scripture. I don't think cessationists have enough scripture to make a clear argument for the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit, especially when you consider that there are a few, not many, to be fair, but there are a few very clear New Testament scriptures like 1 Corinthians 14.1 and 1 Corinthians 14.39 and 40 that seem to command uh, believers to walk in these extraordinary gifts. Now, the Bible doesn't call them extraordinary gifts, but I I think it's okay and fair to sort of refer to them as that way. Um, the gift of tongues and prophecy and healing seems to be uh, different, at least in our logical minds, than the gift of teaching and serving or what have you. But consider 1 Corinthians 14.39 says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything must be done decently and in order. So we have a command here to be eager to prophesy, and we have a command to not forbid speaking in tongues. And I don't see enough in the cessationist scriptures to say to me, oh, we have uh, clear biblical evidence that we're in an era where we're not having to obey the commands of the New Testament. 
First uh, Corinthians 14.1, 14, Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all, that you may prophesy. Is it possible to be a cessationist and fully obey 1 Corinthians 14.1 and 1 Corinthians 14.39 and 40? Is it possible to be a cessationist and fully pursue prophecy? Is it possible to be a cessationist and, and to have a policy where you don't forbid speaking in tongues? And I'm honest, I'm not sure it is. So consider the question, is the cessationist case clear enough from scripture that Christians should disregard clear biblical commands like the ones we just read? And I don't believe the answer is yes. If it was, I believe that would be the only case in all of the New Testament where we use one New Testament scripture to nullify or cancel out another New Testament scripture. And so I guess the big question to me is this, and the big, I guess the big disagreement. And again, this does not separate brothers. I go to church with cessationists. I've gone to church with cessationists for years. I love them. They love Jesus. Uh, they've, I've never had a run in with a cessationist that's ended particularly badly or anything like that. It's a disagreement. It doesn't separate us in Christ, or at least I don't think it should. But the big question is this. Are we living in a New Testament era where we follow New Testament scriptures? Or are we living in some sort of post-New Testament era? And if we are, what has changed? Has the only thing that has changed is that God is no longer giving these miraculous gifts and we're not accountable for the commands in 1 Corinthians 14, 39 and 40 and 1 Corinthians 14, 1. If that's the case, that, that would be kind of weird. I tend to believe we're living in the New Testament era, and therefore we are under the commands of the New Testament. We are living in an era similar to what Paul and Peter were in. And in that era, prophecy did not equate to scripture, and I don't think it does now. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow, but I do believe dreams and visions can still come from God, and they must never be set over and above or equal to the Word of God. As Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, test every prophecy um, and, and that sort of thing. And so we test everything, every revelation by the Word of God. More on that tomorrow. We're getting a little long in the discussion today. Uh, but consider, are we in a New Testament era or are we in a post-New Testament era? What does the Bible teach us on that question, the answer to that question? And with that, we'll continue tomorrow our discussion. I'd love to hear from you, your take, where you think I'm wrong. I haven't fully unpacked my argument yet, and I certainly haven't fully unpacked the cessationist argument yet, and we're probably not going to. This isn't a theology podcast. This is a Bible reading podcast, and let's read some more Bible. Job chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you go on saying these things? Your words are a blast of wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. Oh, ugh. 
But if you earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. Then, even if your beginnings were modest, your final days will be full of prosperity. For ask the previous generation and pay attention to what their fathers discovered, since we were born only yesterday and know nothing. Our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and speak from their understanding? Does papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Do reeds flourish without water? While still uncut shoots, they would dry up quicker than any other plant. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. The hope of the godless will perish. His source of confidence is fragile. What he trusts in is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it doesn't stand firm. He grabs it, but it does not hold up. He is a well-watered plant in the sunshine. His shoots spread out over his garden. His roots are intertwined around a pile of rocks. He looks for a home among the stones. If he's uprooted from his place, it will deny knowing him, saying, I never saw you. Surely this is the joy of his way of life, yet others will sprout from the dust. Look, God does not reject a person of integrity, and he will not support evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with a shout of joy. Your enemies will be clothed with shame. The tent of the wicked will no longer exist. Just a brief commentary on Bildad's words here. The fact of the matter is there are many Christians out there like Bildad. Bildad comes across as humble. He's saying some really accurate things about God. And and he seems to be speaking with some wisdom in some places. But my goodness, we know Bildad is wrong because God rebukes him at the end of Job for his foolish words. And I believe I see one of them here when he's assuming in verse four that Job's children sinned against God and that's why they died. And that is not what the Bible tells us happened. It's nothing to do with what happened. So here Bildad has the appearance of wisdom and is pointing up. Job to God and the goodness of God. And he has the appearance of humility and says, we should learn from past generations how, how little do we know. But he is giving a incredibly hurtful and painful and utterly wrong opinion and couching it in all these good words and humility. And my goodness, that sort of thing is dangerous. Do not speak for the Lord. Speak his word, speak his word, but don't presume to speak things like that that are way above your pay grade. I do believe the gift of prophecy is still active, but I do not believe God tells his people very often why he does things he does. In fact, I believe that is incredibly rare, if not completely non-existent. And Bildad was wrong here, and his words are like daggers, and we don't want to emulate that. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. 
he still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. (laughs) Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against him. So they sent him, they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, that's why they're so sad, you see, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one else dared question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, 
The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive a harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. May that be said of us, my dear friends. Good day and Godspeed.